Thank you for listening to the Highlander Podcast, where we have conversations about the past, present, and future of the outdoor industry. Thanks to Utah State University's Outdoor Product Design and Development Program for making it possible and for training the future product leaders of the outdoor industry. Learn more about the program at opdd.usu.edu. The Highlander Podcast is sponsored by the Outdoor Recreation Archive, a collaboration between OPDD and USU Special Collections to preserve the history and print materials of the people, products, and brands of the outdoor industry. Follow the archive at Outdoor Rec Archive on Instagram. The Highlander Podcast is sponsored by the Utah Outdoor Association, a business association focused on elevating Utah's outdoor industry through educational programming and events. Their membership consists of Utah's outdoor manufacturers, retailers, outfitters, and guides. Member benefits include networking opportunities, recruitment of talent, and brand promotion. More information about volunteering and membership is available at utahoutdoor.org. On this episode of The History of Gear, Avery Truffleman, the creator of Articles of Interest, a podcast about what we wear, and one of the 2023 Outdoor Recreation Archive Fellows, talks at the 2023 Outdoor History Summit about her research in the archive and some upcoming projects she's excited about. Okay, well, I have to be transparent. Well, yes, first of all, I want to say thank you so much to Katie and Meredith. That was so fascinating. Um, And it's funny because I'm not a visual artist. I make a podcast. And so I don't have much to show, which is a funny thing that I went to the archive to look at stuff. And the ultimate end product will also be entirely audio. Um, And so you could ask, like, why does one need to go look at stuff to make an audio piece? But coming to the archive was completely an invaluable gift. And I will tell you why. The funny thing is, actually, I mean, Chase is being modest. Um, he actually reached out and invited me to apply because, um, and it was this, this t- total moment of kismet. Basically, so I make this podcast called Articles of Interest. It is a podcast about fashion, but how do I say this? It's not about runway fashion. It's not about trying to be the most, um, it's, it's not Vogue. It's not about what's happening in the like Zoolander world of fashion. I try to make this, I call it a show about what we wear because I've covered everything from why women's pockets are smaller to where Paisley comes from to if anyone can actually own plaid, if that's a form of cultural appropriation. These are all things I covered in the past. And last year I made this multi-part series called American Ivy. And it was about preppy clothes, which I never thought I would be interested in at all. That is so not how I like to dress. But basically, I realized that so much of what we consider good dressing or classic dressing um, is this one style. It's like button-up shirts and a blue blazer and khakis. It's turned into business casual. It's turned into date night. It's just turned into like general American wear. And I was like, what is this? Where did this come from? And so I thought I was going to make like a three-part series about where preppy clothes came from. Turned out to be this like sprawling seven-part series that goes all the way back to the founding of Brooks Brothers in America, 
all the way to uh, Japan and why Japanese, uh, the Japanese embraced Preppy and made it so much better and functionally sold it back to the U.S. in the form of Uniqlo, which was which was originally created as like a preppy store. It's a fascinating, fascinating history. And then I realized, you know, in the course of researching preppy clothes um, or Ivy clothes or what the kids nowadays call the old money aesthetic or um, what do they call it? Quiet luxury. I realized that in America, what we wear, what American style is, first of all, American style through our media has just become like generic style, right? In the same way that I'm speaking English and that is a remnant of an old empire, (laughs) the British empire. I do believe that the way Americans dress is is our hallmark of empire, that millions and millions of people every single day wake up and dress like Americans, whether they know it or not. And the things that make American style are preppy clothes. It's one style. The other kind of equal opposite of that is like cowboy clothes. I actually think they're two sides of the same coin because one represents elitism and the institution. The other represents freedom and rugged individuality. And these are also two styles that will never, ever, ever go out of style because there are people who just dress like cowboys every day. And there are people who dress preppy every day. And also they're sort of arguably accessible to everyone. I think Southern, Western cowboy clothes, uh, preppy clothes. And then the last big factor in what makes American clothes, American clothes is gear. And by gear, I mean, it's a huge category of clothing, but what gear is in America is anything At its root, right? It's anything that's inspired by the military. Any like high performance gear that was originally pioneered by the US government that has since trickled down into the outdoor industry, into, you know, look at Buck Mason, look at J. Crew. They're selling these versions, these remakes of like old military jackets. Um, I mean, for, for God's sake, even. The hoodie was originally invented. The t-shirt, these were all invented by the U.S. military to clothe soldiers. And this was something that I was thinking about. I was like, huh, the next series, it would be very fun to do a breakdown of gear and like where this comes from and why and how the military influenced so much of what we wear. And I think another side of this coin is this trend of GORP core, so-called GORP core, which was uh, coined in 2015 by New York Magazine, this idea that, you know, wearing Arcteryx to, I I believe it was uh, Kanye West showed up at Fashion Week wearing like a limited edition military issue Arcteryx. And now, you know, wearing Salomons has become very trendy. There are new collaborations every other week between like Gucci and North Face and I, I can't even list all the collaborations. So that's the other end, right? There's like this, these, this tradition of clothes that come from the military and then there's this tradition of like, not tradition, this, this new innovation of like outdoor gorp core gear, wearing equipment to go out and like walk your dog and buy eggs. This is becoming a huge part of uh, the lexicon of American fashion. 
And that's why it was Kismet that Chase reached out to me and was like, do you want to come visit the archive? Because I didn't quite know where to begin. And the fascinating thing is if you look through the catalog collection in the Outdoor Recreation Archives archive, um, you can watch as these companies go from extremely specialized, you know, hunting gear into a wider market, into the mainstream. And you can watch as attitudes about what constitutes the outdoors shifts and changes over time. It's really fascinating because um, you can see that in the beginning of the American outdoors, there was great pride. Dr. Rebecca Gross writes about this a lot. Or, sorry, Dr. Rachel Gross writes about this a lot. Um, you, the It was considered like true rugged outdoorsmen didn't buy shit. You didn't like go to a store to go outdoors. No, if you were a real rugged outdoorsman, you would go like you were supposed to ostensibly go out and kill a deer and make a buckskin suit, right? You weren't like buying pre-made stuff was amateur hour. That is not what you did if you were an experienced outdoorsman. So the outdoor magazines said, in reality, buying stuff has been a part of the American outdoor tradition since the time of Teddy Roosevelt. I mean, that guy did not make his own buckskin suit. He and many other outdoorsmen bought it from indigenous women. They like bought it from the people who knew this culture. Uh, white people in America came to this country without really an understanding of how to work in this climate, how to dress for this climate, how to use natural resources in this vast and varied country. They have long resorted to buying things. And you can see over time that this attitude gets not only like accepted, like, okay, you're going to go out and you're going to buy things, but even valorized. You see this in the catalogs for like Abercrombie and Fitch where they're like, come into our amazing flagship store. This is like early 1900s. And our experts, our salesmen will show you everything you need. Suddenly you see the like store as expert, salesman as expert leading into this culture of like knowing how to shop, knowing what gear to buy becomes this flex. It shows that you are experienced, that you've tried a lot of gear, that you know what to wear. And the fascinating thing is, how is that different from fashion? You know what I mean? Like fashion as we, as we traditionally think about it, about wearing something to show off, to express your expertise, to express something about yourself. And the fascinating thing about it is I feel like when I talk to people in the outdoor industry and gear, they say they're not into fashion. They say they're like, no, this is, this is, these are tools. These are like practical clothes. But really the, the, the lexicon and the meaning of these clothes are very similar to um, any sort of reason that people would wear whatever, Louis Vuitton or Gucci. A lot of it has become about signaling getting ahead of myself. Anyway, it was very, very fascinating to watch over time in these catalogs. Um, and I looked at um, Abercrombie and Fitch. I looked at, and the Abercrombie and Fitch catalog gets totally bonkers by the 70s. I mean, they're selling like cutlery, they're selling boats. You just see as these brands over time start to branch out into selling everything. 
the companies that I didn't know about before that the Outdoor Recreation Archive really uh, presented to me were the twin companies, uh, Hollybar and Jerry. And I'm very excited to make those two companies, which were really innovators in um, the American outdoor uh, clothing industry, a huge part of this this series that I'm going to be working on that'll come out next year. And the fascinating thing about Holly Bar and Jerry is that they are the direct bridge between these two worlds, between the world of high, fancy outdoor gear and the way that people in America used to dress for the outdoors, which was military surplus, which was going to a shop that had been licensed by probably a veteran to buy clothes that had been used by the military. That was where you'd go and buy a tent. That was where you'd go and buy boots until the outdoor industry really started flourishing in the mid to late 20th century. And the connection between these two worlds, between military surplus world and fancy outdoor world, is that companies like Jerry and Hollybar, um, I believe it was Hollybar, no, 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 Jerry specifically was a veteran and would buy this equipment and, you know, iterate on it. And honestly, he would sell it to Hollybar. And you can watch as these companies directly went from selling military surplus to transitioning into becoming specialty shops. And also there's this really like fascinating rivalry uh, between the two stores. Um, and the interesting thing about it is that uh, Jerry wasn't just any veteran. He was a veteran of the 10th Mountain Division, which was an arm of the U.S. military that was specifically very important in our uh, the military's innovation of outdoor equipment. Because get this, they were our ski arm, right? These were the these were the mountaineers and the skiers who went across the Italian Alps in World War II, and no one was expecting that Americans would have a ski team. They were just shocked. It was it was like our elite little ace in the hole. And um, that was where the military really started innovating on um, warmth, on comfort, on making sure that these uh, very specialized mountaineering soldiers could do the job they needed to do. Um, and that was Jerry's background. And that's what led into uh, his contribution to this wave of outdoor retailers, mostly based out of Colorado in the mid to late 20th century. Uh, anyway, so just seeing these catalogs was incredible, but also, of course, the Outdoor Recreation Archive had um, access to Jerry's family albums, his, auto his unauthorized autobiography, a lot of oral histories with him. And um, I mean, the, the, the archive introduced me to so many people who are going to be pivotal in the story that I never would have found on my own, such as... Rachel Gross, the historian who is coming out with the book called, I believe it's uh, Shopping All the Way to the Wilderness. And it is about this American tradition of how we now mediate our outdoor experiences by functionally going gear shopping and clothing shopping before we go outside. Um, the archive also introduced me to Bruce Johnson, who's been, who uh, was the collector behind many of these works. I actually just went to Eugene to see Bruce Johnson. And he has this incredible collection of tougher jackets in his home. Um, and it was really funny. I was like, oh, you're really into fashion, huh? And um, 
he was like, no, 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 this isn't fashion. This is gear. <laughs> and um, who else? And also the fascinating thing about these companies, about Jerry and Hollybar, is that they have gone on. They're still around. They've changed ownership. They've been bought and resold. And they've had these kind of sagaistic stories that have changed as the American retail landscape has had different attitudes about the outdoor industry. And so... I talked to the uh, current owner of Hollybar, who is Italian. The company is now sort of embraced as as a as a bearer of the American look in Europe, and that's that's fascinating. We we talked on the street in New York, um, and I'm also in touch. Uh, thanks again to uh, Chase with Pete Cunningham the son of Jerry Cunningham, to try to get more of his personal story, and. You know, also as part of this, there are going to be a lot of different influences feeding into this great American story of how outdoor gear and military gear became a standardized part of American clothes. I mean, I went hunting with a hunter whose name was Fisher, and he uh, brought out all his camo. And we talked about, you know, what is this camo for? Is this actually for the animals or is this for hunters to like feel cool and show off to each other? And the answer is it does actually depend on what animal you hunt because some animals are colorblind and some animals have really, really good vision. So even if you wear camouflage, they can still like see you. So it's actually really fascinating. Sometimes hunters, yes, indeed are like wearing camouflage for the costume of it and to feel like a hunter. That was really interesting. Got a gun for the first time. Um, another fascinating aspect of it was I recently went to the um, headquarters of Buck Mason, this really popular mainstream retailer, and they brought out their collection of old military clothes. And they said everything in their collection, everything that we now considered like classic menswear in the Buck Mason collection was actually designed based off of American military surplus. And that, that was a huge revelation to me. I was like, wow, how did, how did, how do we take this so for granted that this is what menswear is? Um, so that was a fascinating interview. I also went to a costume house in LA called uh, Eastern Costume, and they specialize in clothing the uh, war movies. They make, they specialize in military uniforms, and that was a fascinating way to look at the variety of different military, different military uniforms all around the world, but also they had a range of different military suppliers because there are now in this complete Ouroboros, a lot of outdoor companies, like commercial outdoor companies that now make clothes for the military, like Patagonia. I looked at some um, Marines uniforms that were made by Patagonia. Um, the North Face, uh, they, they're, they're, a lot of these outdoor companies have like separate departments uh, to clothe the military, but this connection is still ongoing. This sort of triangulation between the military, actually, no, it'd be like a quadrangle. It'd be like the military, hunting, outdoor gear, and fashion. Um, anyway, that's sort of the thrust of it. I'm still working on it. This is going to be uh, a lot of work and it's going to be coming out not anytime next year, maybe the year after. It's very early stages. But yeah, I'd love to talk to anyone about any questions that you might have, especially if this ramble was like totally incoherent. But yeah, any questions? <laughs>
we had one earlier on about you were talking about American fashion, um, like types of American fashion, preferably yeah. outdoor. Where do you see workwear in that? Is that oh separate? There's workwear. Absolutely. Stuff? I would I would group workwear in this moment as like a part of military surplus because those things really were in in close communication. I think a lot of the textiles that were developed for the military found their way into workwear. And I think, you know, if you look at a brand like Buck Mason, that again, is like cribbing so much of their stuff directly from military surplus, they label it workwear, right? I think a lot of it is this sort of nebulous idea of what we think, like, hardworking people who worked with their hands wore. A lot of it is this sort of myth making that conflates uh, workwear and military. So, this is definitely, that's a great question. And it's definitely something that I need to pick apart in the, in the research. Um, but yeah, I think for now, I would call it a subset of what I'm calling this umbrella of gear. It's, uh, Clint and I have kind of noticed that intertwining of workwear and outdoor. You look at companies like Filson that they say that they are outfitting people who are uh, prospectors, people looking out, going out to the gold rush, going up to Alaska. Um, and that, so that intersection of like workwear and outdoor is so intertwined. It's, it's pretty interesting. Um, totally. There's a question about, oh. oh, go ahead. Oh, I just wanted to say to uh, Trent Rupson, um, actually, we did make a historical timeline of this work. Thanks in huge part to the Outdoor Recreation Archive. We made a, um, a, a, timeline directly about this, about the history of Gorp Corps and how it's always been an American thing, using a lot of the imagery um, from the archive in Bloomberg Business. Um, I don't know, I think the gift link inspired, but if you subscribe to Bloomberg, you can, you can read it. Thanks. That's great. Questions? Just scrolling through the chat to see if I missed any. Oh, hi, Rachel Gross. <laughs> your book was amazing <laughs> um yeah if you don't know uh dr gross was one of our previous outdoor recreation archive fellows um and i will include a link in the chat that has a description of all of our previous projects um here's a question what do you think of the rise of clothes that look worn and the search for authenticity in clothes like workwear that's work ripped and stained isn't that fascinating? That is so interesting. And I have to tell you, when I went to Buck Mason, they not only they not only imitate the surplus military clothes in terms of cut, right? They almost crib their exact designs from these military clothes. They were also like, look at this fraying, you know, like look at this, look at this wear. And they imitate wear patterns that were made, you know, from whatever life these surplus clothes had had before, they imitate them on a mass scale. And obviously, they're not the first person to do that. I think the most obvious example of the great American Titan who does that and arguably sort of invented it is the god Ralph Lauren. I mean, the, the classic thing that he does is like mass produce jeans that look vintage and get them just worn in exactly like the right way, which is such a fascinating sort of nostalgic byproduct of industrialism, you know, that we're all like wishing that we lived more in our clothes. And so we make them look like we've already worn them in. We make them look like they 
have a story. I mean, you know, there's like a whole separate book that could be written about this, this idea of like ghost wear and fake wear patterns. But I think that was also, you know, a big, I think if you look at like the menswear traditional menswear revolution of the early 2000s when dudes were really into like raw denim and I'm going to wear this in myself and like do the actual work of wearing in my pants rather than having them come pre-worn. It really brought awareness to this thing that we, we took for granted, which is like, oh, it's fascinating that clothing also requires work from the wearer as well as the manufacturer. Um, it's almost a form of sharing the labor if you think that like then someone in some factory somewhere doesn't have to sand down your jeans and make them look worn in if you're going to wear them yourself. It's kind of this interesting like uh, way to divide the work. But not everyone has time for that. If you've ever put on raw jeans, they're incredibly uncomfortable. And that's the other thing. I think if we were to buy our products completely unworn in, at this point, they look too stiff and too weird. I think culturally, we've gotten so used to having like worn in clothes. So, hmm, I don't know. It's it's fun. All I can say is that it's like a huge part of American workwear and a huge contribution to this like myth making that happens. Which is funny because it's the opposite of like actual gear, right? Like if you go to REI, you want your stuff to be like crispy, clean, and and almost almost shiny, like this tool you're going to use. Um, so it's a great point. It's a very fascinating sort of discrepancy, and I think that's the thing that makes the difference between like gear that we actually are going to use and like this sort of costume fashion gear. Like, are you going to wear it in, or is it already worn in? So, a question here from Heather, and Heather, correct me if I'm I'm reading this wrong, but. Um, Love to learn about the differences and similarities between menswear and womenswear in the outdoor industry and how menswear translates to womenswear over time. I'm assuming you're talking about outdoor specific, but um, any thoughts there? Oh my God, such a good question. I'm like, ah, I haven't done this research yet. I mean, it, it's, it would be really fascinating to see how it manifests Obviously, in terms of like fit, you know, are there pockets? <laughs> do 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 women have what they need? But I'd be very interesting interested to examine the colorways of gear that is marketed to women. You know, the classic phrase in uh, clothing marketing for women, as I'm sure you all know, is like shrink it and pink it. And as that continued in the in the outdoor space, um, I really don't. I really don't know. You know, um, one of the fascinating things is if we're talking about actual, not fashion workwear, but actual workwear. Once upon a time, when I did this uh, episode that I made about pocket sizes, I went to a uniform supplier that, um, this was back when I lived in Oakland, and they supply uniforms to, I believe, the police and the crossing guards and um, all kinds of workers. And they said that everywhere, that among all the different populations that they sell to, women always bought the men's uniforms because their pockets were bigger. And so I also wonder if there's a bit more fluidity in the outdoor space as well for like anyone to shop in the men's section, men's section, um, as sort of this transgressive act of like being part of being rugged and showing that like girls can do it too would be like shopping in the men's department. 
I don't know. There's a lot. That's a really interesting thing. It's it's fascinating. Uh, that's fascinating to explore. I have to think about it, which is really hard for me. I'm like gender agnostic. I'm like, I don't know. I just want to believe that we can all wear brown. Like we're fine. But yeah, I, that that's really fascinating. Uh, there's a few people who have um, been emphasizing Katie's question here. So this will be our last question before our next session. But And of course, it's, it's one of the biggest questions of all. Do you have a sense of how gender race fits in all of this? I appreciate how you address how indigenous women were a part of the manufacture, something we noticed too in pictures of the Oval Intention, manufacturing being done by women of color. Are outdoor gear or is outdoor gear more oriented historically to men because of the military connection or is there something else there too? Uh, Katie, I'm so glad you brought that up. The race connection is fascinating. Fascinating. Like, Okay, so I talked to my friend Rahawa, who hiked the Appalachian Trail alone as a Black woman, and talked about, you know, how she came to this idea, and this idea of, like, who is the outdoors for, right? Like, why has it been coded white for so long? If you look in a lot of the catalogs, they are white, 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 white. And this idea that like the land and the country is like a Caucasian thing is obviously engineered by patterns of white flight and who's able to like get in a car and go to the national parks. A lot of this idea of like who feels safe in the, in the outdoors, who has a right to be walking around and enjoying themselves. You know, if we're going to think back about the woman who called the cops on the black birder, like, why is it, you know, strange to be, why is it suspect to be walking around with nothing to do if your skin is a different color? And there are also really fascinating examples of how this was formed when you think about the ways that, like, black children in the mid 20th century didn't have access the swimming pools, right? It was like segregating swimming. They weren't allowed in pools or the pools in their local municipalities got drained. And suddenly there's this idea of like, oh, black people can't swim or like the ocean is a, is a white person thing. It's these ways that nature through policy, through racism has been cordoned off and, and, and siphoned off. However, the fascinating thing that I'm also, uh, that I also researched with a friend is the way that outdoor gear has then been reclaimed by specifically, like, look at Timberland boots and, um, you know, the way that military gear workwear has made its way into hip hop and streetwear. And this idea that, yes, the city is also nature, you know, like I need to wear Arcteryx in the Bronx, in Brooklyn in Manhattan, because this too is the environment, like it also reigns here. And I think that fashion is a powerful reclamation of those artificial boundaries that have been made over time. And obviously, there's like still a lot more work to go if we're, you know, not going to say that the outdoors is only for white people, only for able-bodied people, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Again, the gender thing is something that I have uh, yet to really explore. Again, because it's like mostly based in military and that was predominantly male. Obviously, it does have this like male tradition, but I have yet to explore the um, gender divides as much. But that's a fabulous question. Okay. I think that's time. Avery, this has been fantastic. Thank you for all the work that you're doing. Thanks for taking some time to share what you're working on. Um, I would say 
if you're not listening to articles of interest, go subscribe wherever you can find uh, where uh, on any pad, uh, podcast platform. And then I've included um, a link to your Substack as well. Um, so you can get updates on future episodes. Um, anything else you want to plug, Avery? Thank you so much. Honestly, if you, I'm just Avery Truffleman at gmail.com. If you're like, what about that? Like you're all, I've, you know, I feel like you should all be talking to me instead of me to you. I'm just learning stuff. So yeah, if you have any hints, ideas, things that could be a part of this series, I'm, I'm all ears. Yes. Low life. Yes, 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 yes. I interviewed some of the low life for the low lives for the preppy series. Also, they're like fascinating dovetails there. Okay. 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 Anyway. Yes. Drop me a line. Thanks for listening to the Highlander podcast. For more conversations with outdoor leaders, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, watch episodes on the Outdoor Product Design and Development YouTube channel, or on opdd.usu.edu slash podcast. Follow along on Instagram at USU Outdoor Product and let us know how you're enjoying the show.